and welcome to Cannings on the Couch podcast. I'm Renee Berto, CEO of Cannings, and today I'm joined by my colleague Susie Reinhardt, and together we'll be discussing the upcoming AGM season and what investors will be focused on most. Today we'll be joined by Vas Kolesnikov from the Institutional Shareholder Services Group of Companies, ISS. ISS is today the world's leading provider of corporate governance and responsible investment solutions, market intelligence and fund services, and events and editorial content for institutional investors and corporations globally. Vas is Head of Australia and New Zealand Research, where he oversees the research, board engagement and voting recommendations of companies covered by the ISS team in Sydney, Australia. Vas, a warm welcome to the pod. Vas, AGM season is about to get into full swing and we're already seeing strong voting against resolutions at AGMs. So let's start with um, what proxy firms and investors will be focused on most um, in your view and you know we already saw the vote against CBA's remuneration report. Um, will this be a big focus, you think, as an area of the AGM season? Um, indeed. I, I see uh, remuneration reports as being the, the most contentious area in an AGM. That's what directors and chairmen mostly focus on because it's, to me, it's not just about remuneration, although for some companies it is. It's about justifying the decision makers remuneration for the performance that they've achieved um, so what you're really focusing on is okay did this company really achieve the results that they had promised and shareholders are, um, are looking at so the remuneration issues this year are, are very contentious there are a lot of changes um, there are a lot of uh, uh, companies underperforming there are a few companies outperforming um, but the interesting thing about remuneration, um, you have the remuneration consultants who benchmark. So everybody still wants to get the same amount, even if they didn't achieve the results for shareholders. And that's one of the contentious aspects of uh, remuneration at an AGM. Mm. And this year with the backdrop of COVID and the very bumpy performance of companies, like does that make you approach it any different differently than how you have in previous years? Or is it, 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 do you look at it the same way? Um, from, from an ISS perspective, we look at uh, everything on a case by case, but we have we we have fundamental policies which um, most companies, um, the market is is fully aware of, and those policies are based on what our clients, the shareholders, expect to see globally. So our reports look the same pretty much um, uh, in every jurisdiction. So so. Uh, this year, the impact of COVID has resulted in um, a lot of companies changing their remuneration practices. Mm. The the guidance that I look at, um, and it's not the companies don't see it as guidance, but I, I I see the change reflecting on what the future expectation is. So you, you alluded to CBA. Um, CBA has issued. Um, the CEO, these things called restricted shares, um, and reduce the long-term incentive. The long-term incentive is historically and has always been based on achieving performance targets. Restricted shares are non-performance based, they're just tenure based. So essentially that's a pay rise, mm. just that it's issued in shares and you'll collect it in four years time. Mm. And this is an annual grant or proposed annual grant from what I understand. So when you take out performance targets, what does that tell one about 
the future expectation. I think COVID and the economic environment are saying there'll be a rocky road ahead for the banks and we need to somehow guarantee some part of that bonus being paid. So that's a contentious aspect for shareholders globally, um, which I'm aware, having spoken to a lot of shareholders, that this is an issue that, um, you know, companies going back from performance targets to to something completely new um, is a contentious aspect of any AGM. Mm, mm. And just to finish off one more thing related to, to COVID and the performance targets, are you, are you expecting to see anything change, like more, you know, broadly defined performance targets or additional ones because of... Um, uh, you know, more responsibilities that boards and, and management have that have been brought on by, by COVID? Um, well, the this year what I'm seeing, um, and there's there are quite a few companies looking at the RSUs, so that's taking out performance targets. That's, that's a big change to performance targets, just getting rid of them completely. Mm. Um, then there are other companies that are putting in, um, certainly in the long term, um, undisclosed non-financial performance targets Mm. so from an investor's point of view you don't know what they're targeting but they're saying they're targeting something um the the most notable ones that i see in quite a few of the certainly the resources companies and a few other industrials um, are strategic targets so we're targeting strategy Um, my usual argument is for the ceo and the executive team isn't strategy the fundamental aspect of what you do. So if, for example, you know, you're a miner and you're, you have a strategy in your target, it's not as if the CEO has taken the shovel out in the middle of the desert and digging a hole. Their job is the strategy. But the LTI in some of these companies has an undisclosed strategy. And to be honest, most of the time we see these as being quite discretionary. One company actually confirmed to me that, yes, we actually haven't even set what the strategy is, the strategy target is. Mm. So that causes me to, um, whenever I see that in any company, I start thinking, okay, this is probably somewhat discretionary. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And Vaz, you mentioned earlier that you look at over 300 companies, I think it was. Um, are there any that stand out as best practice in, in this area in terms of their transparency and, um, I guess, simplicity of structure around their remuneration that, that you can think of? Well, yes. Firstly, I, I'd, I'd say that over time, certainly over the last five years, disclosure of targets, incentives, etc., has improved. Um, since Australia, the Australian market is really has two two points of disclosure: um, the half yearly and the annual report. In the US, they have quarterly reporting, so there, there's a greater flow of information. In Australia, the annual report is audited; the half yearly um, ha- has less detail. So, um, disclosure historically in the Australian market of incentives and, and targets um, has been weak. Um, more recently, and uh, as I've, I reflect often, the world has changed. So shareholders are saying, we need, we want to know, we have a right to know what the decision makers are targeting because we have expectations. Um, we're expecting a certain thing. You're, you're telling us from the investor relations function that we should be expecting a certain thing or a certain result. Let's see what the target is because that's what the decision makers going to be paid for. So disclosure has improved, but in many companies it's still weak. 
if I look at big wholesale changes in disclosure, I would highlight Telstra from 2018 when they received a strike. We will know up until that time Telstra was affected by the NBN. So its results were going backwards. Um, there was no real clear transparency in the disclosure of what the, what the targets were. And that year, you'll see, the share price over the, over the two-year period had fallen about 50%, but bonuses continued to be paid. And I think it, that was when the penny dropped and people said, okay, so we get this NBN stuff going on and it's going to affect the business. Bonuses aren't falling. Share price is half, so we're losing money. But the board's telling us everything's, you know, honky-dory. So the next year, so that Telstra received a, a 62% vote against the remuneration report. The next year, a complete um, about-face. Um, there, there is pretty clear, succinct disclosure of every performance measure at you know threshold, at the target, at the max. Um, there is also, well, for the year that's just completed, we're talking about, when we talk about remuneration reports, it's prior year targets for the, for the remuneration report for the year that's just completed. So there's no guidance there. But that, what Telstra also did in terms of going to the next step, they presented the next year's targets as well, which some boards will say, oh, hang on, that's giving guidance. From a shareholder's perspective, they don't see remuneration targets as guidance, they see it as, okay, this is what the... They should actually be higher targets than what the guidance is. Shareholders actually do expect bonuses to be paid for overachievement, although a lot of boards don't quite see it that way. There has to be... A, you know, some boards see it as a base level of bonus and for just turning up. Um, but shareholders are saying, okay, whatever target you've got, um, threshold, target, maximum achievement that's not necessarily an indication of you know you giving us guidance where you know, which we could put into our model so so telstra is good um you'll see um you know improvements in the banks um uh, there's still sort of a, a few things that are a bit hazy certainly they don't want to describe their strategies etc so that's that's a, an area of haziness so that's um that's there even small smaller companies with any still in the ASX 100 but not in the top group you, you've got alt companies like Altium um that that pretty clear on their disclosure um you can't ask for much more than that it's it's a very shareholders expect clear succinct disclosure not 10 pages of waffle that obfuscates everything great thanks and you know on this topic um and and it's been um commented on quite frequently over the last few weeks in the media about companies receiving job keeper and then um paying executive bonuses does what does iss have a view on that well look yeah. I, I think um i don't think iss has any um any uh, epiphany to offer there i think um the, the chief executive of the Business Council on the Insider Program and the ABC stated quite succinctly that um, from the BCA's perspective, they don't see it as appropriate that bonuses are paid um, to executives where uh, the company's performance is, is, is weaker, um, JobKeeper payments have been received and, um, and even redundancies and stand-downs have, have, have taken place. So... Um, and that that has been confirmed by by shareholders. So I have received quite a, a bit of communication um, with shareholders saying, you know, tell us which companies have been receiving JobKeeper, um, and um, 
what what shareholders are doing are reconciling backwards to to see um, you know what the extent of the job keeper um, has been on the result. And um, turning now to to ESG and given the Rio Tinto experience with Duke and George, um, has this raised the focus? Do you think this AGM season on ESG, particularly in resources companies, but more generally across the board? Well, ESG has been growing in in terms of scrutiny over the you know certainly last five years. I think if we go back to two thousand and fifteen, shareholders would have seen. I think you know one, two, three resolutions at an AGM, predominantly the banks telling them to stop lending to um, to uh, resources or, or polluters. Now it's it's actually gone further than that. So we're seeing companies like Whitehaven had a resolution this year saying, uh, with the shareholder proponents saying, look, you're essentially wasting, wasting money investing in new projects, so we want it back. Um, uh, that, that's gone to the opposite um, extreme, um, you know, Two years ago, last two years, Qantas has had resolutions on um, explaining their uh, the the use of their services on behalf of the government in you know um, uh, removing people from the country, um, refugees, etc. So, uh, you know, Woolworths is very conscious of um, the supply chain um, and and Coles as well. So ESG matters are very uh, are very sensitive. Certainly, European um, investors. Uh, are ahead of the curve on that, um, so there's a lot of scrutiny. I think I think the the, the Rio issue is is uh, I, I think the penny drop for Rio. There have been a lot of environmental issues there at Rio. Um, the way uh, um, this indigenous matter was handled by Rio was clearly unacceptable. Um, I think you know uh, what this then has highlighted other than, you know, something that's destruction of cultural heritage. Um, it's also scrutiny of decision-making. Uh, who made the decision? What was the consultation process? The board's role in this, because at the end of the day, the boards are appointed by shareholders. So the directors are there to act in shareholder interests. Shareholders are not comfortable with this type of behaviour. So what did the board do? What did the board know? So this is where ESG matters are very, uh, well, certainly increasing in, 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 um, in scrutiny. Mm, yeah, and I think that we're seeing, you know, and I think you mentioned this earlier, that the community expectation and shareholder expectation has, has changed dramatically over the last five or, or ten years and ESG being a key part of that. Do you think that we're just going to see that um, expand and, and grow or do you think it's um, something that is driven um, you know, by boards or, or held back a little bit by boards? Where do you see that dynamic of ESG going? I, I think ESG fits into the equation of um, – and, and coming to the forefront because I, I always say there are two things that shareholders want. Shareholders want company to make money for them and they want companies to make it the right way. So the ESG aspect is this, the latter. It also overlaps onto the former as well. So if you promise to make money and you, you, you promise that for, for your promise you, you, you'll receive a bonus, then you've got to achieve it to get it. But then in terms of making the money, there, governance and the environmental issues have major consequences for financial results and financial performance. Um, as we saw in, 
in uh, the big banks, the Royal Commission, AMP issues. If you have conduct issues, that has implications to shareholder value. That was never really, um, I think, associated uh, as a consequence of poor conduct because, okay, you know, you're making money. But the problem is if you have poor conduct, that has an implication on staff, as we saw in AMP. Staff will leave. Good staff will go. Um, if you have poor conduct with customers, then customers will go. So that has an implication on your business. If you treat the environment poorly, um, there will be, you know, even at basic level, there could be uh, fines, penalties, etc. Um, that has a, 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 an outcome on, on the financial, a long-term financial uh, performance of the company. So ES, the prominence of ESG is, is not just one of those arty type of concepts that I think a lot of historical boards would have thought, oh, look, this is all a, um, you know, a millennial, you know, left wing type of thing. Uh, it, it's, it's actually a real value concept that people really need to understand. And from an environmental perspective, um, it, it's real. Mm. It's real. Mm. And that probably brings us also to be think, thinking about board composition because um, often that's a reflection of, um, you know, the, the board and these types of issues and what they're focusing on and what the, you know, their, their interpretation of the priorities of, of investors. So, you know, what do you think or what are you seeing or what are you thinking um, in terms of how, how you're assessing um, diversity and inclusion policies and, and, and the culture because cultures seem to be changing quite a lot in, in, in terms of expectations of what the culture will be within organisations. So how do you keep up with that in terms of those expectations? Look, I think the, 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 the board aspect is very challenging. Um, historically, shareholders have always been prepared to give boards the benefit of the doubt. And there's nothing wrong with that. The, the problem has been more recently exposed when shareholders have expected action and it hasn't happened. And the lack of action, action um, has a value implication. So we saw more recently the AMP um, saga drag itself out and you saw the, um, you know, uh, the, the share price start coming off. You saw, you know, announcements of, okay, results are going to be lower. You know, the, there's issues with employees. Once again, these things have value implications and boards are expected to act um, APRA, APRA issued its draft consultation paper, I think, a year and a half ago on remuneration, CPS 511. The, the bit that seems to be missed most frequently talks about um, conduct and risk management issues in, in bonus considerations. But cl um, a clause or, 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 or paragraph 41 says APRA and the standard expects bonus, uh, bonuses to be reduced by boards to nil even if performance wasn't adequate. So so that's another aspect where boards are expected to act, but and they haven't in the past. Um, so more recently with that AMP, eventually, the AMP scenario, eventually the board acted. You can contrast that with Mike Wilkins at QBE, where they had a, an issue there with the CEO. That was pretty much handled from what I can see the news broke and the CEO was gone two days later. Now, uh, we don't know the facts of what happened there, but what that shows is that's decisive action. The board made that decision. 
completely contrasted with what happened at AMP. And also you can say that it's completely contrasted with, well, perhaps a middle ground has been Rio, where it took a while. They had a, a board um, committee sort of investigating the issue and the, 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 the scrutiny increased. So, look, there's, there's, a fo- there's a focus on directors' duties acting in the interests of shareholders that they're expected to act in, in all ways. They're, they're expected to have the skills, the skills to deal with these challenging situations. So... Diversity is is real. I think, you know, there are many studies that, that talk about gender diversity, that there is value um, in improved gender diversity. Um, I remember having discussions with chairman a couple of years ago of the resources companies saying, you know, you, you expect me to put a woman on the board? And I said, I, my usual response was, well, you've got a whole bunch of male accountants and lawyers. Surely you can find a female accountant and lawyer to do exactly the same thing. It's not that hard. Um, but so it's been a very slow process to get this done and the recognition. So skills are an issue. Um, we're seeing an increasing um, increasing uh, presence of overseas directors. Um, most Australian companies are now increasingly, certainly the big ones, increasingly becoming global. So there's a need for some global experience in the markets, etc. Um, so that's there. So that's you know the cultural diversity, mm. the ethnic diversity, there's the gender diversity issue. But ultimately, I always say is you know um, shareholders are expecting accountability from directors. That's I think Catherine Brenner um, when as she left as chairman of A&P a few years ago, she said, you know, the board accepts collective accountability and as chairman of the board, she needs to be accountable. That, um, that's an outstanding comment. There aren't too many directors that I've heard, heard uh, you know, uh, stand mm. down and accept that. Mm. Um, so that's, uh, the world has changed in that regard. Mm. Mm, interesting. Thanks, Faz. Lastly, I mean, we work with a lot of listed companies and, and often they ask about the, the best time to engage with companies like ISS. What's what's your recommendation to, to companies looking to engage with you for the first time? I, I need to admit it is a source of frustration for me because um, – I do get uh, emails in September and October from investor relations people, you know, wanting wanting you know me to meet with their chairman, um, and that's not going to happen. Um, AGM season, uh, our reporting starts at the end of August. Historically, certainly for the last four years, we've had a cutoff of thirty one August or the first week of September, um, and and I would alert by by that stage, I've already met with a hundred hundred to 200 chairman of ASX 300 companies by that stage. So there are many companies that are already, shall I say colloquially, within, you know, within the program. They get it. Um, don't um, you know, send an email right at the last minute. But just to clarify, um, there's an ASIC guidance note on this. They've, they've reviewed the process. And even ASIC provided a guidance to the company to, to suggest that it, it is somewhat unreasonable to expect um, a last-minute um, email, you know, with a meeting, requesting a meeting sort of in two weeks' time just before the AGM in the middle of AGM season. Um, so uh, we do request, and we're very happy to, you know, meet with any board and chairman to discuss whatever they want to discuss but we do request um an agenda um that they they see of you know um important issues but the important point to clarify is iss relies on publicly available information 
So that's the annual report. We expect the annual report and shareholders expect the annual report to be clear and succinct. So, you know, I've had chairmen say, oh, look, it's on our website on the fifth tab, on one of the other tabs and at page, you know, 100. We're not going to find that and shareholders won't either. So in terms of the salient issues for the year, there's an expectation that everything's in the annual report uh, presented in a clear and succinct way. Um, so... You know, we would, we're happy to meet with companies and we're happy to do that well before season. Um, there's no point just issuing the norm and then saying, let's, let's come and discuss it because the norm's out there. We, we already read it. We, we are, you know, capable of understanding what it, what, what it says. And we do have our policies, which are also on our website that people can read, um, which interpret, um, you know, the annual report and the, the resolutions that we're providing recommendations on so um, I think in short um, companies should come early mm. and and if there's a, a substantial change in a remuneration um, report or policy should companies at what point should companies come and talk to you about that should it be as they're kind of after the annual report's gone out um, as they're drafting the remuneration policy what what's what do you typically do or see? Well, yeah, look, the, 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 uh, what's the best way to say it? The, the companies that are most proactive and the ones that we do meet more often than not, um, w- we have meetings for 30 June balances with companies um, making changes in you know, February, March, April, well ahead. Um, look, we, we all know you don't change your remuneration policies or any policies within the company in, you know, after you've, re- you've released the annual report. Um, so th- that's already a bit late. So um, I can't provide advice. I'm not permitted to provide advice. We have a, another area of, of, of the company that does that. But what, what we can do, if, if somebody does have an agenda, we can say, look, this is the market practice. This is what we're seeing. And perhaps through our questions, um, a board will see the types of issues that we're focusing on. Um, so rather than, um, you know, just as an example, if, if they want to, sort of issue the, uh, their new CEO and executive team a whole bunch of RSUs, um, we could say, well, look, that's somewhat problematic. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing overseas and what we know happens here in, in, um, in the ASX 300 companies. And we've had already a few engagements like that as well. Mm. That's great. Thanks, yeah. Baz. Great. Thank yeah. you. Um, well, that sort of wraps it up. And thank you, Vess, for coming and uh, joining us today. It's been a lot of great insights for us. And I'm also really conscious that you are busy at the moment. So appreciate your time. And um, thank you, everyone that's listening in today. Thanks very much for the invitation. Okay, great. Thanks.